Neville Landless had started so early and walked at so good a pace that when the church bells began to ring in Cloisterham for morning service, he was eight miles away. As he wanted his breakfast by that time, having set forth on a crust of bread, he stopped at the next roadside tavern to refresh. Visitors in want of breakfast, unless they were horses or cattle, for which class of guests there was preparation enough in the way of water trough and hay, were so unusual at the sign of the tilted wagon, that it took a long time to get the wagon into the track of tea and toast and bacon. Neville in the interval, sitting in a sanded parlor, wondering in how long a time after he had gone, the sneezy fire of damp faggots would begin to make somebody else warm. Indeed, the tilted wagon, as a cool establishment on the top of a hill, where the ground before the door was puddled with damp hoofs and trodden straw, where a scolding landlady slapped a moist baby, with one red sock on and one wanting, in the bar, where the cheese was cast aground upon a shelf, in company with a moldy tablecloth and a green-handled knife, in a sort of cast-iron canoe, where the pale-faced bread shed tears of crumb over its shipwreck in another canoe, where the family linen, half-washed and half-dried, led a public life of lying about, where everything to drink was drunk out of mugs, and everything else was suggestive of a rhyme to mugs, the tilted wagon, all these things considered, hardly kept its painted promise of providing good entertainment for man and beast. However, man, in the present case, was not critical, but took what entertainment he could get, and went on again after a longer rest than he needed. He stopped at some quarter of a mile from the house, hesitating whether to pursue the road, or to follow a cart track between two high hedgerows, which led across the slope of a breezy heath, and evidently struck into the road again by and by. He decided in favor of this latter track, and pursued it with some toil, the rise being steep, and the way worn into deep ruts. He was laboring along, when he became aware of some other pedestrians behind him. As they were coming up at a faster pace than his, he stood aside, against one of the high banks, to let them pass. But their manner was very curious. Only four of them passed. Other four slackened speed, and loitered as intending to follow him when he should go on. The remainder of the party, half a dozen perhaps, turned, and went back at a great rate. He looked at the four behind him, and he looked at the four before him. They all returned his look. He resumed his way. The four in advance went on, constantly looking back, the four in the rear came closing up. When they all ranged out from the narrow track upon the open slope of the heath, and this order was maintained, let him diverge as he would to either side, there was no longer room to doubt that he was beset by these fellows. He stopped, as a last test, and they all stopped. Why do you attend upon me in this way? he asked the whole body. Are you a pack of thieves? Don't answer him, said one of the number, he did not see which. Better be quiet. Better be quiet, repeated Neville. Who said so? Nobody replied. It's good advice, whichever of you skulkers gave it, he went on angrily. I will not submit to be penned in between four men there, and four men there. I wish to pass, and I mean to pass, those four in front. They were all standing still, himself included. 
If eight men, or four men, or two men, set upon one, he proceeded, growing more enraged, the one has no chance but to set his mark upon some of them. And, by the Lord, I'll do it, if I am interrupted any farther. Shouldering his heavy stick, and quickening his pace, he shot on to pass the four ahead. The largest and strongest man of the number changed swiftly to the side on which he came up, and dexterously closed with him, and went down with him, but not before the heavy stick had descended smartly. Let him be, said this man in a suppressed voice, as they struggled together on the grass. Fair play. His is the build of a girl to mine, and he's got a weight strapped to his back besides. Let him alone. I'll manage him. After a little rolling about, in a close scuffle which caused the faces of both to be besmeared with blood, the man took his knee from Neville's chest and rose, saying, There. Now take him arm in arm, any two of you. It was immediately done. As to our being a pack of thieves, Mr. Landless, said the man, as he spat out some blood and wiped more from his face, you know better than that at midday. We wouldn't have touched you if you hadn't forced us. We're going to take you round to the high road, anyhow, and you'll find help enough against thieves there, if you want it. Dot, wipe his face, somebody, see how it's a trickling down him. When his face was cleansed, Neville recognized in the speaker, Joe, driver of the Cloisterham omnibus, whom he had seen but once, and that on the day of his arrival. And what I recommend you for the present is, don't talk, Mr. Landless. You'll find a friend waiting for you, at the high road, gone ahead by the other way when we split into two parties, and you had much better say nothing till you come up with him. Bring that stick along, somebody else, and let's be moving. Utterly bewildered, Neville stared around him and said not a word. Walking between his two conductors, who held his arms in theirs, he went on, as in a dream, until they came again into the high road and into the midst of a little group of people. The men who had turned back were among the group, and its central figures were Mr. Jasper and Mr. Crisparkle. Neville's conductors took him up to the minor cannon, and there released him, as an act of deference to that gentleman. What is all this, sir? What is the matter? I feel as if I had lost my senses, cried Neville, the group closing in around him. Where is my nephew? asked Mr. Jasper, wildly. Where is your nephew? repeated Neville, why do you ask me? I ask you, retorted Jasper, because you were the last person in his company, and he is not to be found. Not to be found, cried Neville aghast. Stay, stay, said Mr. Crisparkle. Permit me, Jasper. Mr. Neville, you are confounded. Collect your thoughts. It is of great importance that you should collect your thoughts. Attend to me. I will try, sir, but I seem mad. You left Mr. Jasper last night with Edwin Drood? Yes. At what hour? Was it at twelve o'clock? asked Neville with his hand to his confused head, and appealing to Jasper. Quite right, said Mr. Crisparkle, the hour Mr. Jasper has already named to me. You went down to the river together? Undoubtedly. To see the action of the wind there. What followed?
How long did you stay there? About ten minutes, I should say not more. We then walked together to your house, and he took leave of me at the door. Did he say that he was going down to the river again? No. He said that he was going straight back. The bystanders looked at one another and at Mr. Crisparkle. To whom Mr. Jasper, who had been intensely watching Neville, said, in a low, distinct, suspicious voice, What are those stains upon his dress? All eyes were turned towards the blood upon his clothes. And here are the same stains upon this stick, said Jasper, taking it from the hand of the man who held it. I know the stick to be his, and he carried it last night. What does this mean? In the name of God, say what it means, Neville, urged Mr. Crisparkle. That man and I, said Neville, pointing out his late adversary, had a struggle for the stick just now, and you may see the same marks on him, sir. What was I to suppose, when I found myself molested by eight people? Could I dream of the true reason when they would give me none at all? They admitted that they had thought it discreet to be silent, and that the struggle had taken place. And yet the very men who had seen it looked darkly at the smears which the bright cold air had already dried. We must return, Neville, said Mr. Crisparkle, of course you will be glad to come back to clear yourself? Of course, sir. Mr. Landless will walk at my side, the minor canon continued, looking around him. Come, Neville. They set forth on the walk back, and the others, with one exception, straggled after them at various distances. Jasper walked on the other side of Neville, and never quitted that position. He was silent, while Mr. Crisparkle more than once repeated his former questions, and while Neville repeated his former answers, also, while they both hazarded some explanatory conjectures. He was obstinately silent, because Mr. Crisparkle's manner directly appealed to him to take some part in the discussion and no appeal would move his fixed face. When they drew near to the city, and it was suggested by the minor canon that they might do well in calling on the mayor at once, he assented with a stern nod, but he spake no word until they stood in Mr. Sapsea's parlor. Mr. Sapsea being informed by Mr. Crisparkle of the circumstances under which they desired to make a voluntary statement before him. Mr. Jasper broke silence by declaring that he placed his whole reliance, humanly speaking, on Mr. Sapsia's penetration. There was no conceivable reason why his nephew should have suddenly absconded, unless Mr. Sapsea could suggest one, and then he would defer. There was no intelligible likelihood of his having returned to the river and been accidentally drowned in the dark, unless it should appear likely to Mr. Sapsea, and then again he would defer. He washed his hands as clean as he could of all horrible suspicions, unless it should appear to Mr. Sapsea that some such were inseparable from his last companion before his disappearance, not on good terms with previously, and then, once more, he would defer. His own state of mind, he being distracted with doubts and laboring under dismal apprehensions, was not to be safely trusted, but Mr. Sapsea's was.